Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 143. With Dr. John Leaf, a nationally recognized neuropsychiatrist and expert on cellular communication science that's all about how it's our cells communicating with each other that causes feelings, sickness, thoughts, and disease in our bodies. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. And the excitement for this episode began the week before the interview when I posted Dr. Leaf's book and information about the interview on social media with a link to his website and the buzz began. I know this is a topic of interest for listeners, and I think it's so important to feature speakers who provide the scientific research to answer the questions we might have about ways to improve our health, productivity, and results. What you'll learn today will open up your mind to new ways of looking at your health and performance going beyond our brain and into the cells of our body that Dr. Leaf says is the way our health works. If you're new here, my name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm an author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now living in Arizona, and like many of our listeners, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies in our school, sports, and the workplace with strategies that we can all use, understand, and implement for improved results. If you've been listening to our podcast for some time, you'll know that we've uncovered that if we want to improve our social and emotional skills and experience success in our work and personal lives, it all begins with an understanding of our brain. And since most of us have not had a crash course in the basics of neuroscience and how an understanding of our brain can impact learning, I launched this podcast in June of 2019 with the goal of interviewing leaders and experts who've risen to the top of their field using these success principles. Which brings me to our next guest, Dr. John Leaf. What captivated me with Dr. Leaf's work, even before I'd read his book, was when I heard him talking about where his interest in the topic of cellular communication began, and he noticed that the books written on this topic were impossible for the average person to understand. And this is the whole reason why we started this podcast with a focus on neuroscience, so we could take the research and break it down so that it's simple and easy for anyone without a background in science to understand. When you meet Dr. Leaf, you'll find he's someone who can take those high-level, complex scientific concepts and break them down to be applicable in our daily life. That's what makes his work unique, and I know it will be what will propel him to reach the masses with these sought-after connections between the mind, brain, body, and health. Here's Dr. Leaf's background so you can see the work he's been involved in with most of his career leading him to the fascinating work on the secret language of cells. Dr. Leaf is a graduate of Yale and holds a doctorate in medicine from Harvard Medical School. He's a known innovator in several medical fields and the leading neuropsychiatrist investigating cellular conversations. His book explores the cellular conversation as a new way of understanding how our cells have constant intelligent chatter between them, showing no separation of brain body, mind body, or brain immune. As a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and former president of the American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry, Dr. Leaf is an expert in the field of neuropsychiatry. He's delivered innumerable lectures on neuroscience, psychopharmacology, brain injury, dementia, and depression for audiences of physicians, other healthcare providers, and the general public. Dr. Leaf wrote some of his first books on computing and high technology in psychiatry for the American Psychiatric Press, leading to the development of one of the earliest treatments for brain injury in the U.S., Dr. Leaf has been quoted in Newsweek, People Magazine, and other national media outlets, and has recently spoken on the podcast, Stay Young America. I'll put all the links in the show notes so you can access them. I am so excited to dive deep into his most recent book, The Secret Language of Cells, What Biological Conversation Tells Us About the Brain-Body Connection, and See What We'll Uncover. 
Welcome, Dr. Leaf. It is wonderful to finally meet you after speaking via email this past week. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Leaf, I could begin our conversation with the question that everyone asks you about your book. Why did you write this book? But I do want to dive a bit deeper and let the listeners visit the show notes where I'll list some of your podcast and they can hear your answer to that. But I want to talk about a topic that you thought was important enough to name your website after. So if anyone goes to Google and they type in searching for the mind, it will bring up your website where you say that you uh, first began this journey. And I've been interested in this journey of mind versus brain for years. And I wrote an episode on understanding the difference between the mind and the brain, um, episode 23. But can you give your perspective of what is our mind versus our brain? Um, well, that that is the big question. The uh, I, I was a neuropsychiatrist for many, many years. I treated primarily, I specialized in medical and neurological patients that had uh, psychiatric issues. So I was dealing constantly with the mind and the body. I was constantly dealing with medical illness and the psychiatric uh, uh, ramifications of that and how the body can be affected by uh, mental states, attitudes, etc. And um, uh, you know, I, I studied neuroscience and used to lecture widely in that. And about 10 years ago, I uh, started this, the idea of looking through the scientific literature. And I must say that my website has no speculation. It's all data. So I decided early that I would only include proven articles from Science Magazine, Nature Magazine, from the top journals. So everything on my website. And when I did speculate once in one of the 200 articles, and I said, I'm going to speculate. So I'm going to tell you when I speculate here as well. I like to separate what we do know and what we don't know. Uh, I have my own opinions, obviously, based upon my experience, but I like to stick closely to what is known. And there's a lot known and a lot is being learned in the last year. And the problem really is finding out what's known and interpreting it into English because you can't read it. Uh, no one can read this stuff. It's in journal articles filled with gobbledygook of genes and receptors and uh, names of proteins. And it, almost no one can understand it unless you're right in that field. And so I learned to speak the language of molecular biology, molecular genetics, et cetera. People said, do I speak languages? That's, those are the languages I learned. And um, so I started writing articles based upon the review, you know, the top review articles in the top journals. And I would write a post every week about where, it, what is mind? Where is it in nature? Is it in the human brain? Well, it's not, Obviously, the mind is somehow connected to the human brain, whatever the mind is. Um, and uh, I just want to state also, which you also alluded to um, in one of your communications with me, is that we have no idea what the mind is. In other words, basically, there's no scientific definition of mind. There's no scientific definition of consciousness. There's no scientific definition of intelligence in nature. None of this is known. And scientists tend to poo-poo the idea of subjective experience, which is absurd because we all know we have subjective experience. There's no question about subjective experience unless you're a scientist and you don't know what to say about it and you don't know how to research it. So you say there is no, it's all random molecules bouncing into each other, but the cells are so complicated and so intelligent, it can't be random. I mean, it's absurd when you look at the structures of these huge mammoth proteins, machinery, um, vast machinery with electron transport and proton transport and, and uh, water uh, and, and ions. And it's, you know, and it's all designed through um, uh, DNA, uh, genetic maps and, uh, it, it, and cells are so intelligent, they talk to each other. But anyway, I started off not really knowing other than what is well known, which is that neurons talk to each other. So neurons send signals. Everyone knows that. We learned that in school. Neurons send neurotransmitters between each other. And this conversation goes on in, in the physical brain. 
I say physical brain because in truth, all the cells are the brain because they're all talking to each other just as much. So what happens is I started with that and looking for a place in the brain where subjective experience lives and, and there is none, you can't find it. There are no modules. There's no, they used to think there were modules in the brain, but there aren't. Each cell is highly connected to many other types of sensory data. Uh, each cell is connected to many, many centers. Um, so you can't find a place in the human brain for subjectivity. And also it doesn't make any sense because there's mind between us. We're talking between us. There's culture, there's science, there's the internet, there's all kinds of things that are part of what we might think of as mind that are not in the human brain. And so obviously the human brain is some kind of receiver or receptor of, of, of whatever mind is. And I wanted to explore what this is. So it led me to articles about neuroplasticity, which we'll talk about, and memory and perception and all that, which, which is very interesting. Um, because we know that, for example, perceptions, which is the main external stimuli we're getting, and we create the perceptions out of expectations, these perceptions trigger networks of genes that affect our immune system that can be measured. So we have a measurable effect of mind of perceptions in the physical body but we still don't know what that is and what 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 is a perception and we and we talk about memory and we have an example which I'll come back to of how cells make memory and how new cells consolidate and how you, we can use that for help traumatic experiences for example but this is all controlled by the immune cells the immune cells are triggering these these new brain cells but anyway so i went through articles, uh, I was writing my posts every week, and I, I, I led, it led me to animal brains, and I did uh, posts on a lot of the animals, and then I got smaller and smaller, and I had the honor to write an article with a famous um, animal scientist, Dr. Beckoff. We wrote about the comparison of bees, lizards, and birds, and their brains are so remarkable. They're just unbelievable, and bees have symbolic logic, they have a symbolic language, they can uh, talk about directions based upon the sun and all the flowers they've seen for five miles, they, they know all this. Ants can know 50, can learn directions in 50 different ways, individual ants I'm talking about. And so I was writing about how smart these insects are and then I was writing about microbes and, uh, it's just remarkable how intelligent microbes are and how can that be when it's a, just a cell? So, I mean, my conclusion now and my next book is about that there are brains at every level. There's a brain at the cellular level. There's a brain in the molecules. There are these networks that are just like uh, our brain uh, that are inside the cell. And the very last chapter is sort of a trick I threw in the book, which is for the future about a molecule that signals and how intelligent this molecule is, because ultimately it leads in the direction, not just cells are intelligent, but actually molecules are intelligent. Um, but again, I, I, I'm I have to stay with, I've stayed with the facts. Uh, so in any case, it led me to cells, microbes, and their colonies and their communication. And this led me to human cells. And then I began to uh, look at uh, immune cells in particular and how smart they are and cancer cells, which I know you're interested in and we'll talk about. And um, I just, it was just clear after a while how smart cells are and that everywhere you look in every cell I looked at, platelets even, platelets are remarkable. How can a platelet converse? Well, they have a lot of my, uh, RNA that are given by their mother cell. They don't have a nucleus, so no one considered that they could be uh, making all kinds of products, but they are. They're the first responders. They call for immune cells. They call for uh, et cetera. Uh, they don't just plug. It's not just a plug. And so every single cell is extremely intelligent. Capillary cells are telling organs how to create the organ, and they're telling the brain cells how to build brains. Why, how can a capillary cell do that? And uh, capillary cells are calling for um, all, of, all across the body, sending signals, send me this cell, send me that cell, and then they send directions and they follow the cell up. So it just became apparent to me that this is how it works, that it's not, I mean, everyone knows neurons talk, but uh, now it's very obvious from my book, I think, that all cells talk and that that is the basis 
of how life works and how physio all physiology and all the new medical treatments are based upon these signals and based upon this conversation. When you use a virus and a, a T cell to fight cancer, you're basing this upon knowing that there's already communication that's that's occurring uh, through these uh, from cell to cell. So everything it turns out in life is based upon cells and the whole definition of life has to be changed because there is no definition of life because Zimmer wrote a wonderful book recently about uh, the, the, the how do you define life? And he, what he did is uh, 200 pages, he went through and he's a brilliant writer. He, he wrote about how every single theory and he presented every theory makes no sense ultimately. I mean, you, you can't say it, it involves reproduction because if so, what about a neuron that's not gonna reproduce? Is it alive? Obviously. What about someone who's past reproductive age? Are they alive? Obviously. So he debunks every single definition because usually if you ask a scientist, what is life it's a cell that can reproduce and metabolize but now i think we really have to say it's a cell that's intelligent and talks and communicates with other cells and how can that be how can a cell know what's happening around the whole body and be talking to cells uh communicating uh where to come uh so it's and and the reason that I wrote the book really is that no one knows this because of the jargon. You just can't read these articles. No one can read these articles. Even an expert in a close field has to really know. So I spent years, you know, just translating article after article into English. And then I finally had enough that it was, I could write the book. Um, and I, and I deliberately wrote the book with no jargon for anyone. So anyone can read it because I realized if I wrote the book with jargon, it wouldn't matter because the scientists are so dug in in their narrow view of what life is and 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 what um uh, you know and the fact that there's no such thing as subjective experience which is totally ridiculous uh you know anyone knows their subjective experience and so it should be part of nature obviously it has to be and but so where is it in nature anyway that's a whole you know i could go on on that well, that's where, when I was writing your questions, I could have gone in 10 different ways with every yeah, question. Well, you can go wherever you want, that's fine. And well, when you were answering, you when you were talking about mind versus brain, just to start off with, my first introduction to our mind was with a speaker that talked about the fact that we had these higher faculties above our senses. Like we don't just, see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, we have perception, reason, our will. And you mentioned these, our memory. These, he said, were our higher faculties that go beyond our senses. And now for the first time, I've heard someone talking about the science behind the higher faculties of our mind that are interacting within our body. That was the first part that I picked up. Well, let me give you an example um, about memory. Well, I already mentioned that perception, cells respond and we respond to external stimuli. So where you are, and cancers, of course, respond to where you are, the environment, the chemicals, the, 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 the temperature, the situation, uh, and they trigger genetic networks inside cells that can change, you know, 500 different genes and make a totally different cell, as a matter of fact. So, um, but let me talk about memory. So when the fetus is born, it, it, it produces uh, uh, a trillion brain cells, neurons, and then it gets rid of um, most of them down to about 86 billion, a mere 86 billion. And it gets rid of those almost a trillion cells without any scar tissue. They sort of systematically cuts them up and digests them and reuses the material. So it, it's not like it creates a scar or anything like that, which is quite remarkable. And then once the fetus is born, and then the neurons that stay are the ones that are active and that are talking. And the ones that are talking and that are responding to the environment and communicating with their comrades, et cetera, they build networks and uh, we'll come back to it, but the way we use our brain, the brain is extremely dynamic. No one realized how dynamic these cells are and that the way we use our brain creates the circuits in the brain so that that's why I always 
say that people need to have meaningful activity and we can talk about what meaningful activity is because that's what builds the brain. And I have an article about how elderly people that are active, their brains are much better than uh, younger people, which the prejudice today is the opposite, even though in the old days they were considered wise, now they're considered senile. And so, but in actual fact, if they're active, they're building circuits to the frontal lobes, between the right and the left side, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but so what happens is that the production of neurons basically slows down to a thousand a day, approximately. And most of them are in the memory center, a little bit in the nose. So the nose and the memory center are, are building new neurons. And the way, when we re-remember something, a new neuron in the memory center gets involved with that memory. And then that memory gets consolidated when we sleep. It starts communicating to other cells and the new memory um, gradually overtakes the old memory uh, and becomes stronger, younger cells. So what I always tell people is that because of this re-remembering, um, building new structures in the brain, you can use this to help with traumatic experience. So for example, um, you have a traumatic experience, everyone does. What you can do is re-remember and with the new memory, like typically, you know, if you re-remember something, you now it's not a car, but it's a Chevy. So it gets more detailed. So the new memory, you add factors, like love and self-worth, good things that have happened recently. Joseph Ledoux, Joseph Ledoux's work, he's centered around memory consolidation and getting rid of those bad memories. Right, except that he doesn't really um, believe in mind, uh, but he's a brain expert and wonderful uh -huh. stuff on the brain. But uh, yes, but the, the reconsolidation is well known. I mean, this is a fact. So that's, that's totally uh, pr proven. And so if you add um, positivity, then the new cell takes over, builds new networks, gradually replaces the old memory. The old memory doesn't go away. It's still there, but the, the predominant one becomes this new recollection. Every time you re-remember something, a whole new uh, memory is created. And so you can gradually lessen the impact of, of the traumatic event. So that's just one. Now, now let me just, so how does that new brain cell so no one thought that there yeah. was immunity in the brain. No yeah. one thought well, immune cells. What? And people didn't think that brain cells could regenerate, right? So you're right. talking about building new brain cells. And now this so is- There are a thousand new brain cells every day. Okay. And, and that all through life, even late life. And those, most of them become memory cells. Some become uh, smell. So smell, and there are a couple of other areas, but the, 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 that's the big one. So what happens is that um, no one knew that there were immune cells uh, near the brain, and they thought that the, the one immune cell in the fetus goes to the brain. It's, a, it's actually a macrophage. Uh, it's a white blood cell, and it stays there, and, it's, it's, and then it, it builds a family. It has children, and it stays in one little area. That's the microglia, and that becomes one of the main brain cells. So that's there, but the T cells never get into the brain unless there's a break and a, a disaster and an infection. Uh, so what but what was recently found, which we didn't know, is that in the cerebral spinal fluid, the fluid bathing the brain and surrounding the brain, and you was thought, again, that that was just for... Uh, cushion when you hit your head, but it's not. It's a stream of communication to, uh, totally through the cells, all the parts of the brain. And so the T cells get into the, it's this, this fluid and there's uh, 500,000 of them floating around. And so when we get sick, uh, so normally the T cell sends a signal to the neuron saying, keep cognition going normally. But when we get sick, the T cell, this is really strange, sends a signal to the neuron to create the sick feeling. So that feeling we get where we have to lie down, we have to take care of ourselves. That's the T cell says, you know, you're sick. We, we need to use the energy to fight the infection. Uh, this body should lie down and take care of itself. 
and uh, they create the fever and all this is done through a neuron, but it's instructed by a signal in the T cell. Now, when we're healthy, um, it's only the T cell can tell the neuron to get rid of the sick feeling. Likewise, when we get, um, the T cell sends a signal to the neuron to keep making memory cells. And the stem cells continue to do that and the memories are built in, this, in the hippocampus region. But when we get, when we have um, depression of, from whatever cause, there's less brain cells. And the way this happens is the T cell sends a signal to the neuron to stop making so many memory cells and you get the brain fog from the depression. Now in acute stress, uh, the production can go up actually. Acute stress can be positive when you're working hard on a project, but if the stress goes on and it's chronic, then that same signal will get rid of the, uh, stop the memory cells and you get the brain fog again. And again, it's the T cell, it's the communication so at some point, I want to talk about this whole thing of, they're called neuroimmune circuits, and they are incredibly important and incredibly active. Um, it's how immune, immunity is affected by meditation, and it's how acupuncture works, which is new discoveries also recently. So I'm not sure uh, where I should go with this. Um, we could go in several directions. Yeah, it maybe go into that right now, because I definitely wanted to talk about when cells are communicating what we should know. I know we should all know about cancer cells and definitely inflammation because, right. you know, we, we all know that's the precursor for chronic disease. So what and cancer? And, and yeah. So yeah. could you go into what's yeah. going on that? What should we know? What should everybody know about their cells? I was saying before that all the cells are talking, the capillary cells, the, uh, the gut cells, the skin cells, they're all talking and they talk to the immune cells. But one of the most dramatic communications is the immune system and, the, and, and what we call the brain, which really should be everything. Um, the, uh, no one knew how incredibly um, close they are and how important they are. So these are called uh, neuroimmune circuits or neuroimmune reflexes. And what happens is it goes in all directions. So I call it the wired brain and the wireless brain. The T cells are moving around and they're talking to the neurons that are kind of fixed, but they, they change also, but not dramatically like a T cell traveling around the body and sending signals as it goes. So in the direction of the immune cell to the brain, I've already given you uh, a number of examples of how it tells it to make new brain cells, how it tells it about the sick feeling, et cetera, et cetera. But in the other direction, the neurons can create inflammation or they can trigger uh, signals, cytokine immune signals that help immunity, help or hurt. Inflammation is a very, very complicated subject. There are many, many kinds of inflammation. And basically it's action by immune cells to do something. So it, it can be regenerative if, if, if there's a cut or if there's a, you know, a break somewhere in the, the neuron. So it can regenerate and it creates inflammation and the cells come to work on that. But there's also fighting infections. That's a form of immune um, uh, inflammation. And that can be very good and it can be very dangerous because if it doesn't stop in time, it damages the tissues and it can become autoimmunity, like, uh, you know, diseases like multiple sclerosis and et cetera. So um, no one knew that neurons have dramatic control over the types of inflammation. And they, so um, like, for, for example, meditation, everyone know, knew that your breathing slows down, that you know your cognition is more focused, that the heart rate slows, the gut slows, and it was clear that those physical things were through the vagus nerve. So the meditation is stimulated, but no one realized how can meditation create immunity, uh, increased immunity against viruses. And there's all kinds of evidence of all kinds of uh, cytokines and signals that are stimulated by uh, meditation. And it's also like Pavlov's dogs. The more you meditate, the more the immune system gets better through these reflexes. And the reason is because the 
these neurons can send immune signals to the T cells and, and, and create uh, increased immunity through communication in the other direction from neurons to the immune cells. Um, recently, uh, no one knew what acupuncture, how it works. No one could figure it out because it's logically, it would be along what you might consider an energy field of some kind. And the only energy fields we know about in the West are blood flow and uh, neurons. And it wasn't clearly connected with either. So then they did a study where they found an acupuncture point and they stimulated it with electricity. And what they discovered is that they were stimulating and it was not near a neuron and it was not near a blood vessel. And it affected from the wrist, it affected the, the kidneys. So how does that happen? Well, the way it happened is they noticed, and it's really amazing the science today, and this is why we can learn this now. How can you observe a signal in the middle of a tissue, a molecule? It's remarkable, but the science is so great now, and it's happening so fast that there's so much information. I write often that all the latest data is in the last year, um, although there's still a lot of significant stuff from, from the past building, uh, but it's being built recently. And so anyway, this electricity stimulated a T cell that was sitting there in the tissue. The T cell becomes activated and then travels near a neuron and sends a signal to the neuron. And then it goes through the, uh, the neurons to the kidney. So this neuroimmune signaling is meditation's immunity, it's acupuncture immunity, but it's all kinds of things. I mean, it's, uh, and so what perceptions affect immune cells and suddenly it triggers a cascade. What happens is that signals hit a cell on a receptor and then it, a cascade occurs and there are hundreds of these cascades all interacting. That's where it becomes like a brain. And then eventually one thing happens, one molecule affects another, another all the way down. And then eventually a transcription factor, it's called, goes into the nucleus and triggers a gene. And these are, it's a complicated story, but it, multiple transcription factors need to build like a communication. So like you'll have a hundred of them and one, four and five will trigger this and two, six and eight will trigger that. And, tr and, and you can trigger hundred genes at once. And not only that, but these cascades can amplify. Can we they, go back, just step back to when you said a perception starts this? Do you mean right. a thought perception, like a negative thought perception? Positive is or negative. It can go either way. And what happens is perceptions, what we've learned, are not based upon sensory data. In other words, the input of the sensory data is very tricky. Um, for example, in the eye, we get a very small percentage of, of, the, of what's triggered do we actually get into the brain. Uh, but even if you take the final signal coming up the spinal cord of sensory neurons, most of the action are neurons from the top coming down and massaging and modulating that input. And that is based upon expectation. So perceptions first create a perception based on what you expect to see in that scene. And then they say, oops, oh no, this is new. And I have to alter that. And within a split second, it alters into something new. And then that becomes an expectation or not. Um, so it, it becomes a question of what is conscious and unconscious. Uh, there's a lot that's unconscious and conscious. And again, one thing we could be certain is that the brain also works through a constant fluctuation of focus and free association. So within, you know, part of a second, you're focusing and then you're free associating. And what meditation does is it strengthens both such that you free associate wider and more. Uh, and uh, it's more, that's how the creativity comes in. And, uh, but there's a thing uh, we should talk about called neuroplasticity, which is, which is important also of how learning occurs. And uh, so, but in any case, I said a perception is the most powerful external stimuli. 
And that stimuli, for example, loneliness is a powerful immune blocker. It has a dramatic effect on making things worse <laughs> for immunity. Then you have uh, a threat signal, the fight and flight signal again affects the immunity in a certain way, but positive uh, influences affect the immunity in different ways. Meditation, which is conscious brain activity, that's one of the things you can say is conscious because you're directing. Uh, and the more you can focus and direct, the more we become conscious and not random. Uh, most of the brain is random. There are people are responding to random stuff on the phones and, and, and you know, uh, wherever. And uh, it's a struggle to not be random. And the way, and that's why meditation is so good because you learn to focus. Uh, anything that, it doesn't have to be classical meditation. It could be anything where focus is, is involved and where you allow the free association. So it can be uh, gardening, it could be walking in the nature, it can be, uh, you know, all kinds of things are meditative. Uh, martial arts, uh, Tai Chi, whatever, all kinds of exercise. Uh, so, um, so, but your question was about perception. So perception is the most powerful external stimuli that then affects the cells, the signal is amplified. In other words, one little signal can become a hundred molecules in, a, in different directions and, and 500 genes and totally change the whole cell. And then that cell can send signals to other cells and your cells marching in different directions and you stimulate the uh, hypothalamus and you get all kinds of hormones going. So, uh, you know, it's very complicated. But. So our negative self-talk, those automatic negative thoughts that we might have, like I'm not good enough or those types of things that come into our head can cause sickness in the body from? Oh yeah, well, so learning is based upon what's called neuroplasticity, where how the brain responds to things and then changes itself as it goes and it involves, I have a lot written about this in my website about uh, maybe 50 different ways that it changes. But the, the most important concept from my point of view is that there's a thing called whole brain neuroplasticity which involves using most of the brain. Uh, people didn't realize, scientists didn't realize that the brain is very active and it uses a lot of the brain. It's not like one little area. And if you can get a change, a positive change or negative change, it's most powerful uh, if it's whole brain. So uh, let me give you an example. Um, high jumper is about to do a high jump and um, sits and visualizes the high jump and because they visualize, they then uh, do a 30% better jump than they would have if they didn't visualize. But now, while they're visualizing, they go like this. They move their hands like that. That physical movement added to the mental visualization increases it to 45%. Well, that's kind of crazy. How does that happen? Well, another example. These, this is research, again, it's, it's proved studies. Um, mathematics teacher teaching two exact same classes uh, to uh, young students. Uh, and in one, they don't point, and the other, they point. They're always pointing this and this. And the students associate the pointing to the thing. The math is 15% better with the pointing. So, what does this mean? Well, we all know that certain things are powerful experiences, like a musical experience are powerful. Uh, most powerful would be like a religious music experience. So what's going on there? Well, you have the band who you know, you know the history, you know the people, you have associations with that, you know the music, the words, the meaning of the words, you're moving, you're tapping, you have people around, there's friendly people around. So all kinds of places in the brain are being triggered at once. And that whole brain creates a memory that's extremely powerful. And so, um, but the way we use our brain is what determines what it will become. So if you use it for negative purposes, you'll create negative circuits. If you use it for positive circuits, it'll be positive. So it's important that people do not just activity, but meaningful activity. 
Um, and you mentioned expectation in there, the expectation of what you want your outcome, whether it's sports or academics. Yes, it's, it's very important and it does affect things. And you can't, we can't quantitate it at this point, but it definitely is happening. So, you know, you ask how mind can affect physical illness. We don't know. But we, but we do know, we sort of know uh, that these same principles operate and that we're affecting the immune cells. We're affecting the neurons, you know, by the way we think is affecting the, at the cellular level and at the genetic level. So this leads me to my question for you, the big one that I know that you would say science hasn't proven that yet, but I wonder just what you would think. So. Um, the story is my mom was diagnosed with cancer in the late 90s and she was given, it was uterine, and she was given a 15% chance of survival. And um, I also have a friend who was recently diagnosed with a brain tumor. So I'm thinking more along the lines of what I could tell my friend's daughter to help her because my mom had a powerful success story. So she told me that she did this activity. She was very much into the mind and she would go um, twice a day into her body like with her thoughts and imagine a person with an ax chopping up all the cancer cells. And she would go from head to toe for every part of her body. And this was the only thing she did that was different. She was the only one in her group that beat cancer and remains cancer free to this day. And the surgeon wanted to bring her back and have her explain the story. And she didn't because she said, you know, people are just going to think it's crazy. And um, she told me about it because I started to have an interest in this. But what do you think? Can the mind influence my mom's cancer in that way with your knowledge of the cells? Could she have destroyed the cancer cells with her thoughts? Well, it brings up many questions. And the answer is yes, it could. But uh, do we know that it did? No, we don't. Um, so there is the curing of the cancer and there is the mental state improvement where you don't cure the cancer. There's two aspects to this because we all die and we all have to have an attitude uh, to deal with that. We like to avoid that uh, in one way or another. So, I mean, these recent experiments with psychedelics, which are not so recent, actually, I wrote, um, articles on that and 45 years ago at Harvard ran a course on um, the research into psychedelics. And it was clear at that time that you take uh, 80 cancer, dying cancer patients who felt terrible and had these experiences, 60 of them did remarkably better and were able to die more happily. So there are clearly ways to uh, spirit, moving in the spiritual direction of one kind or another. Um, but so, Clearly, I already mentioned that perceptions influence immune cells and immune cells fight cancers. Not so well, by the way, they're not so great. And we can go into that. It's, it, cancers are very complicated and, and very intelligent cells. They're like super intelligent cells that, that thrive on the chaos of inflammation. They take advantage in all kinds of ways that are very, very interesting how smart they are. They communicate like microbes. They send genes to defend against medications. They build a structure that's like an organ with blood vessels. They trick the fibroblast into building a structure. They trick the immune cells into building the structure. They're remarkable cells that have taken over the machinery and altered it so they don't die. And so they reproduce rapidly and they're very strong kinds of cells. But having said that, uh, it is clear. So there have been studies in uh, miracle cures, like what is a miracle cure? And um, remissions, miracle remissions, which is what this would be called. Um, and they were inconclusive, inconclusive. In other words, there were all kinds of variables. Nothing made any sense. Some happened for this reason. Some happened with people doing like what your mother did. Some happened with other things. So, um, I mean, certainly it's worth a try and it might have uh, did it. It might have helped it, but there's no evidence to say that it did. But I have clearly stated already how important perceptions are for uh immunity and how important it is to have this positive attitude where the cells are all talking in the right ways to each other um, and building neuroplasticity so the brain is strong 
through positive uh, behaviors and positive attitudes. Um, so all of this could be, I mean, uh, but again, you can't, I, again, it's speculation on my part to say, but there's a logical train of research that could say, yes, it could be. Yeah, so what about my friend's daughter with the brain tumor? So um, what's the difference between brain cells? You've talked about it a little bit, the wired brain and then the wireless brain, like so the cells are immune cells, blood vessel cells, organ cells. What What's the difference? Is there anything we should know versus cancer in different parts of the body versus the brain? Well, there are many things to know uh, about that. Uh, each kind of cell can form cancer. And some are more prominent than others because they respond to things in the environment. It could be chemicals, situations, it could be, um, it could be based upon a little bit upon genetics. You can have a genetic predisposition that then when a certain mutation occurs randomly, it, it interacts with that genetic event that already occurred. Cancers, what happens with cancers is they're cells that through the chaos of inflammation develop mutations in various places. And most of the mutations don't matter and we don't get cancer. And every cell gets mutations. But when the mutation occurs in one of four or five very relevant areas, then it becomes more important. So for example, one of them is a signal, uh, it's called apoptosis, cell suicide, a directed suicide. Cells commit suicide when they're uh, faulty and they know they should get rid of themselves. It may be filled with viruses, they may be just defective in various ways. So that, that pathway, if you get a mutation there, suddenly they're not killing themselves and you get an abnormal cell that lives longer. Then there are pathways of repair of mutations. And again, that can be damaged. And then there are pathways of um, the cell cycle is triggered where new cells are made. Uh, neurons only do that for those thousand cells, but the gut cells, skin cells are making millions of cells every day, platelets, white blood cells. So in fast producing cells, there are signals to, the, to divide, make more cells and there are signals to grow. Uh, so whenever those pathways, and, and almost all cancers have those mutations. And once you get one, and you're in a milieu with inflammation, which means all kinds of crazy chaotic things going on, you tend to get more mutations. So what happens is the cell uh, divides a lot, it doesn't die, Oh, also, there are pathways that affect the telomeres, which are things that um, limit division in cells, but can be altered through an enzyme. They're the, something that builds the telomeres as opposed to uh, most division of cells decreases the telomere size, but there are enzymes that rebuild it. So the cancer learns to rebuild it, doesn't die, it becomes like an immortal cell. and, and like microbes, it's smart and it knows how to talk to its colleagues. So it's talking to other cells, it builds a colony and it, and it manipulates the signals of the local cells to get blood vessels for it, to build structures for it, and it builds an organ. Um, it alters its mitochondria and then it's, cancers love um, two kinds of signaling. Uh, Again, signaling can be chemicals secreted, which we've been talking about. They can be in um, little sacs that they put like uh, DNA or important molecules in little sacs and send those sacs. Uh, cancers love those, they're called exosomes and, and they love these sacs and they love to send them off to faraway places to build metastasis. And, and they learn, the unique signals of that faraway place because certain signals work in the liver and certain signals work in the brain and certain signals work in the lungs. So certain cancers are good at living in the lungs and the brain and are good at living in the bone and here and there. Um, and they learn how to send these sacs. They also love these things called nanotubes, which are so tiny. We've only le re recently learned about them. These are tiny little 
tubes made out of protein that go between almost all cells. Microbes have them for inches where you have a microbe way down in the earth living off a, a metal and it's sending electrons to microbes on the top. And they, they you know, thousands of times, uh, it's, like, uh, it's like the internet. It's like the, the microbe internet. And they, um, cancers love these nanotubes and they build several kinds of nanotubes and send signals back and forth between their comrades. They even, when they have an altered uh, mitochondria, and the mitochondria are vital and critical for everything. They're amazing. Uh, I'm doing a lot of research on mitochondria now and on the energy production. That My, my next book will clearly have something to, about that. But the mitochondria... Um, once they're altered to be good for the cancer, they can send it to their comrades in these nanotubes. And they'll, they'll actually send altered, they'll send resistance um, genes. So, you know, the way microbes get a resistance genes to stop um, antibiotics of certain kinds, cancers will do that. They'll figure out how to fight a, a, a medication and they'll send that between each other. So you're dealing with a very smart, uh, cell and each cell is slightly different because it within the cancer uh, one cell gets another mutation and we're all learning about mutations through this COVID thing so we're learning how and what happens is that cell becomes a little more powerful because of that mutation and it builds a subcolony so cancers have subcolonies and that's why it's so hard for T cells to get them because they are T cells are good at short battles where they overwhelm the, the virus and the bacteria and they make millions and then they calm it down after a while. But if they have to fight for a long, long time and fight different subsets, they're not so good at that. And uh, that's why T cells don't always get the cancers. And uh, that's why we're now altering T cells, um, sometimes with viruses, sometimes with other things. We're, we're creating ways that the cancer can uh, that the T cell can go after this little subset, this little subset, but it's very complicated. And each cancer is different. That's what's so hard about it because you have, so you have to have almost a, a unique treatment for each one. Um, and, um, but the more we learn about how cancers live and what their signals are and what their patterns are, the more we'll be able to uh, defeat them. But again, whether mental things change enough. Uh, oh, one thing about brain cancers that are very interesting. So there are, are basically five or six cells in the brain and each has its own cancer. So there's a neuron, neuroma it's called, there's the astrocytoma, uh, there's the microglia. Each of them, astrocytes are one of the main cells and they divide a lot and they're one of the main cancers and they tend to have synapses that are electrical in nature. So these cancer cells, what they do is they create electrical synapses with neurons and they take the energy from the neuron. They're very, very clever. Um, so each of the brain cells are different and they have different cancers. Uh, so. Got it. So with all of your knowledge on the cells, let's just say you were told yourself that, you know, Dr. Leaf, I'm sorry to say that you've got cancer. What would you do? Um, with with everything that you know, what would be your first step for getting yourself to the other side? Well, if I had skin cancer, I'd get it removed. Um, uh, well, clearly, some cancers need medications. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you have to keep a positive mental attitude because fundamentally, we're all going to die and no one wants to realize that so no one realizes that we are beyond this body the mind is beyond this body so we have to um figure that out at some point in order to have peace as we pass on um no one's figured out how to stop this thing called death uh and we don't tend to do that so having that mental attitude is, ve is very helpful. And the kinds of things your mother was doing was really a meditation um, of an anti-cancer meditation that is certainly worth doing. Um, 
There are other meditations of that kind that are certainly worth doing. Um, I didn't talk about how important other things. So food, sleep, exercise, um, meaningful thought, meaningful activity, spending time in nature, and re-remembering. These are the keys to health, as far as I can see. So uh, to mention each of them, sleep is very, very important. And it's where memory is consolidated. It's where the brain decides what's important, what's not important, and emphasizes, keeps this cell, it keeps this circuit. And all the circuits are, 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 are basically detached in sleep. And then some are emphasized and some are de-emphasized. Um, sleep in the... Deep sleep, so different kinds of learning, you need to sleep. That's why children need to take naps after they learn something. That's how they learn. But the, the important thing we've learned about sleep is that during sleep, neurons shrink in half. And there's a flow of, um, a cleaning flow of the fluid that becomes dramatically better when the neurons shrink and makes room for it. And this is what gets rid of the, the, the clogged proteins that cause uh, uh, degenerative disease like Alzheimer's. This is what normally, and there are other cleaning processes. So in order to have the cleaning process, we need to have sleep. That's one thing. We also need to eat properly because what happens is that if you eat chemicals that the body doesn't understand, it takes up energy and time, it clogs the system, uh, that's why uh, it's so important not to eat chemicalized food. Um, the other thing, and, and certain foods have miraculous things. I mean, almost all of our medications have come from plants by accident. They're all accidents. And plants have thousands more. So like a blueberry isn't just one thing. It's like a thousand different things. And it's better than a vitamin. A blueberry has a million things in it, whereas a vitamin has one that may be helpful. We don't even know for sure. Uh, so, you know, whole foods, no chemicals, a lot of vegetables and uh, uh, berries are magic. And, and then um, exercise has a miraculous effect on neuroplasticity. It creates, a, after you exercise, there's a period where the brain can learn new things. Wow. dramatically better but it can learn good or bad things again if you take a mouse and you exercise it and then you give it cocaine it'll become more addicted more rapidly right after exercise so you'll learn addiction better but you'll also learn your positive thinking better so after exercise is when you want to emphasize learning uh positive thinking uh um, etc um I already went over how dramatic it is to have meaningful activity and the, and the whole brain plasticity, which includes motivation, attention, movement, uh, a good thing to be doing, uh, charity, somehow helping people. All of that uh, is vital for, for brain health, for body health, and for immune health. Um, and then it's surprising, but walking in nature is... It, it's a unique thing. Now, I don't know if, you know, this is crazy thought. This is speculation. Uh, you know, we're so complementary to plants, you know, and, and I do talk about plants and how microbes and plants talk in my book and how they talk through the whole forest and all that. Uh, that communication is going on and they defend each other. The plants defend each other. So plants are remarkable and they have consciousness and they uh, we're complementary with them in that they make CO2, oxygen. I mean, we're totally bound together. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not, but I do know that if you put an EEG in your cap and you just walk into nature, you're, you're already meditating. So um, if, you, if you're in the hospital and you just have a little plant there, people get healthier. If you live in an apartment and you can see a tree, it's better. Anything of nature that you can do uh, is extremely beneficial to the brain and brain health, body health, immune health, et cetera. So those are the, sort of the pillars of, uh, of health based upon cells. 
Fascinating, fascinating. I'm just loving this. And and Dr. Leaf, I could keep asking you questions, but I know that when your second book comes out, I'd love to have you back on to just go a little bit deeper because this is a good start. If anyone picks up your book and goes to the table of contents, chapter eight is about the, the your ideas on cancer that you've gone deep into. And then there's another chapter on inflammation. Those two chapters really... Uh, I think are what everyone should understand about our, our cells and health and, and the tips that you've given. Um, can we just add, like, there's one last thing that you've touched on a little bit, and I know the answer is that we don't know, but how, <laughs> how does a cell, like a liver cell, know what it's supposed to do? Is there some sort of intelligence within these cells? Going back to the mind and consciousness, how would it know what it's supposed to do, opposed well, to a different cell? The scientific answer that we know is these transcription factors. But how the cell knows to trigger those transcription factors, we don't know. But we know that the uniqueness of the liver cell is because this set of factors have been triggered and it makes it into a liver cell. But how that liver cell knows how to talk to the pancreas cell and how it talks to the fat cell, how it knows how to talk to the muscle cell and the brain cell and the, and the blood vessel cell, we don't know. And how the capillary sitting in the liver can tell the stem cell what particular cell to make in the liver is wild. I mean, it's just completely crazy. All what my book shows Again, I don't say that because I did. I, I, it's pure science. I wanted to keep it pure science. The only speculation is the last is a conclusion where I ask questions. But there's no question that my book shows that these cells are intelligent and that they're talking to each other and that they know a lot and that they are sending signals back and forth and back and forth. And that cell knows it's a liver cell and it knows how that it's supposed to talk to five other cells in a particular kind of way, and it does that. How does it even know there are other cells? I mean, it doesn't make any sense unless there's intelligence throughout. So to me, searching for the mind in nature, uh, I mean, my speculation is clear, I think, that, nature, that, that mind and intelligence and consciousness are a fundamental, they're, they're physics, they're, they're like, matter and energy they're a fundamental aspect of nature that is in everything and then ray kurzweil's comment is that this showing the cells are intelligent how does that imply that the larger intelligence our intelligence how is it related to the cellular intelligence is it a building block um, phenomenon and it probably is but I, you know that's again our mind triggers activity at six orders of magnitude, all of the instant, from, from a quark, a photon, uh, an electron, to uh, an organelle, mitochondria, to a cell, protein, to an organ, to uh, a whole body, to a brain, to an internet. Uh, all of that is triggered at the same second, at the same moment. So mind exists on all those levels, I believe. But that's, again, a speculation. So. I believe that as well. I can't wait for your second book to come out. When's it coming out so I can... Oh, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of uh, research. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm doing a lot of research about photons, about electric, how electricity... You know, everything runs through electricity. So... All of our gadgets, your microphone, the internet, all the stuff we're living, uh, the, the Zoom meeting, it's all uh, electrons. And the cell is running by electrons in the same way. There's this electron transport, the electron circuits that create movement of protons, that create ATP, that create the energy. And ATP is the molecule of both energy and information. It's the molecule in DNA. All of this comes from uh, electrons uh, at one level. Again, you know, you have to pick your level to, to talk about it. Um, but so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that level for a while. And uh, then I'm planning to write about brains at all level, 
you know, how the brains exist. Uh, you know, our brain is clearly a structure, but there's the larger brain. There's the, the, the culture, there's society. There's a larger brain, and then there's smaller brains that are just as complicated. How that liver cell has a, uh, interactions is a brain. How that liver cell inside deals with the transcription factor is, is a brain. Inside that mitochondrion is this unbelievably complicated molecule making ATP. That's a whole brain where the electron is traveling through. Um, brains at every level. Lots to think about, but for anyone who wants to learn more about this fascinating work, Dr. Leaf, they can go to your website, um, John, J-O-N-L-I-E-F-F-M-D.com, or just search for you, searching for the mind in Google, and you come right up. They can find you on Twitter, where we've been having a lot of fun posting stuff, and LinkedIn. It, on Twitter, you're at John Leaf MD, and same thing, just type your name in the search bar on LinkedIn and you come up. Thank you so much for being here. I do look forward to when book two comes out and having you back on. Well, thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 